Amen, friends. If you would grab your Bible and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. At this time, I'd like to invite all the kids out this side door with Miss Joy for a jump start, and you guys will be back at the end of the service. Thank you, my unpaid intern, Brian. <laughs> uh, hopefully, you were there Friday night at the talent show. Uh, if not, you missed a parody of me, which was not true in the least bit, I just want to say. Uh, but welcome to uh, JPC. My name is Dustin. I get to be the pastor here. We're looking uh, really over the next several weeks and months at one book of the Old Testament at a time. Uh, last week we started with Genesis, and now we are into the second book in the Bible, Exodus. So turn with me now to Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. So if you have Exodus in front of you, look at verse, excuse me, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And with that in mind, friend, hear the word of God to us this morning. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Uh, friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated? Keep that Bible open in front of you again. This is what a, what a wonderful reminder to be bringing your print Bibles. I see so many Bibles out. This is so, if you have your Bible, just wave it up in the air and give yourself you know, a pat on the back. Great job. I'm so proud of all of you. Uh, we have print Bibles in the back. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one after the service. Uh, but uh, welcome, and welcome to everybody watching online. Hopefully you too have your Bibles with you. Uh, let's pray as we dive into God's Word. Uh, Father, we thank you that uh, you are the source of all living water. Father, would we see how your word reveals our hearts, but also your heart as well. And Father, would your heart become ours? Would you replace our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh and water us with the word and with your spirit? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, what is this? Anybody know? Anybody want to take a guess what this is? Can you see? It's small. It's a small version of it. Anybody know what that is? Can y'all see? It was once alive. It was in the ocean. Uh, Greek migrants, uh, you know, Greeks, when they came to the United States, a lot of Greeks moved to a little town uh, just north of Tampa, Florida, called Tarpon Springs. And the Greeks knew how to go mining underwater for these, and they would find them, and that's how we have a bunch of them today. Of course, a lot of them are synthetic, but this one actually is a natural one. Uh, but the key thing is to remember this thing, this specific thing used to be alive. 
It used to live in the ocean, but, you know, now it's dead and kind of brittle, hard. But what happens to this thing when you pour water back into it? What happens to it? It softens up. It starts to take the shape that it was always meant to have. But of course, you know, these things dry out, right? Eventually, no matter what you pour in, it doesn't ever seem to stay like that. It goes back to being kind of dusty and brittle, right? So what is this thing? Nope. Mm -mm. It's not a sponge. You know what it is? It's our hearts. They may have once been alive, made in the image of God, but now something happened to them. It has a memory of being alive, but now it's dead and brittle. We can pour all kind of things in it, but eventually it dries out again. You know, I tried pouring some self-help books on it. It dried out. <laughs> Took some anger management classes, and they dried out. Imagine if you poured living water in it. So I'm in a series right now, as you know, called Whole, right? And we're trying to see the whole picture. And when we read the Bible, sometimes we focus on the trees and not the forest, right? You ever heard that idea, you can miss the forest for the trees? Sometimes I feel like when we study the Bible, I think we miss the forest <laughs> because we're so interested in, in the trees and the barks that sometimes we forget to just sort of step back and see the grandeur of what God is up to. Right? And sort of what's the grandeur? What's the big story of the Bible? Well, God created a beautiful what? Sponge. And that beautiful sponge was alive and it lived in the ocean and it moved and it had life. And then what happened to the sponge? We ripped it out and it became dead and brittle. But then what happens? God chooses to redeem the hard, dry sponge, and pour life and water on the dry ground. And one day, God promises to make a new sponge. And at the end of the Bible, in, in Revelation 22, literally the last chapter of the Bible, God promises to make a new heavens and a new earth. And what's running right through the middle of the new heavens and the new earth? The river of life, right? Friends, that's a, a metaphorical retelling, right? But the story is true. God created a good world. It fell into sin, but God has chosen to pour life to offer us redemption. And that redemption is really just the first step of a two-step process where we are redeemed, but becoming made whole. And we look forward to the day that everything will be made new, right? That's that four chapters that we talked about last week, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? So how does Exodus tell that story, right? Well, if you were here last week, I suggested to you that in God's plan, you know, chapter 3 of redemption, God made a covenant, a solemn bond with a specific group of people. And they're the descendants of whom? Abraham. And God's plan of redeeming this world is to make a solemn bond with Abraham that his children will become more numerous than the stars in the heavens, that they will become a, a nation, and that nation will one day somehow bless all of the other nations, right? But in Exodus, if you look down in your lap, uh, you know, maybe Exodus is probably the most familiar book of the Old Testament with everybody, thanks to whom? 
Thanks. Who, who, who helped make Exodus, you know, understandable to people today? Anybody know? Cecil B. DeMille, right? <laughs> Actually, the answer is Jesus, but you all got that one wrong, so I'm going to go easier on you. Cecil B. DeMille. Who, who's seen the Ten Commandments? You know, what a, what a, wonderful, what a wonderful idea to um, stop whatever you're watching on Netflix that is totally full of filth and watch the Ten Commandments with your family this week. Just a suggestion, right? Imagine watching the Ten Commandments. See if you can get into the book of Exodus. But what's happening in Exodus? Well, that family, the, the descendants of Abraham that God has made this covenant promise to use to give to the land of Israel forever that will then bless the whole world. Well, what's happened in Exodus? Well, in Exodus chapter 2, we find out that they have become enslaved. But what happens in Exodus chapter 2? Well, if you read Exodus chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, listen to what it says. And God heard their groaning, the people of Israel in slavery. And God remembered his what? Remembered his covenant promise. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He knew what they were suffering and he knew what his covenant promises were. So he delivers them. And of course, you know, many of you know this story, right? He raises up miraculously a deliverer named what? Moses. He leads his people out of slavery in Egypt. He humbles the proud nation of Egypt. Uh, he sh- God shows them over and over again, the whole world, that he is God. There's nobody else like him. You know, uh, we'll go through it on Wednesday night, but each of the 10 plagues corresponds to 10 Egyptian gods, right? The, the ninth plague, you know, the most powerful one before the firstborn are killed. The ninth plague, God wipes out the sun, right, in its darkness, right? And what God is showing is Ra, the sun god, is not God. God has control over light and darkness. So don't worship the false gods. There's only one God, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the Israel God, right? That's the one true God. And God, you know, famously delivers them. They have the Passover, and then they come to the Red Sea, and God parts the sea miraculously. Pharaoh changes his mind. He chases after them. They get consumed in the water, and God's people escape. And they go through the wilderness, and then they come to Mount Sinai, and God gives them the what? The book of the covenant, which the Old Testament calls the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, right? Which, you know, just as a reminder, of course, the Ten Commandments are not a list of ways to make God love you. The Ten Commandments are the rules that free people live by. This is how free people live, is by the Ten Commandments, right? It's not a, it's not, you know, it's, isn't it fascinating that God doesn't give the Ten Commandments to the people and say, well, if you can follow these generally well for a few years, maybe I'll deliver you out of Egypt. Instead, what does God do? He proves himself faithful to his covenant. He delivers his people. He brings them out of slavery, and then he gives them the law and says, this is how free people live, <laughs> Uh, And of course, but what's the rub, right? Well, the rub of the book of Exodus is even though God has delivered the people out of slavery, right? Slavery is still in the hearts and the minds of the people. So they'd need a deeper deliverance, right? You can take the people out of Egypt, but it's harder to take the Egypt out of the people, right? And what happens over and over again in the book of Exodus is God is showing us our hard hearts and showing us his heart and how he offers us what we could never give to ourselves. Right? You tracking? 
So let's uh, look then look then at, at, at Exodus 17. And uh, we'll go more into the story of Exodus Wednesday night, but I'm trying to pick a story you haven't really heard before. But I think if you can get this story, you can sort of read the rest of Exodus. And there's really two points. This is a two-point sermon, very simple. Uh, the first point is you need to see our hard hearts that need to be delivered, right? So there's our hard hearts. And then we're going to see the heart of the God who delivers, right? Our hearts, his hearts. We need to be delivered, and he is the deliverer, right? So look with me at Exodus 17, right? They haven't received the law yet, but they've been set free from Egypt and slavery. Look at verse 17, verses 1 and following. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. That is, you know, sort of bit by bit they're moving along. And sin, just for the record, doesn't mean like sin, not that kind of sin. That's, this is like sin as in just that's what the region was called. It just happens to sound like our word for sin, right? So they're in the wilderness and they're following according to the commandment of the Lord, right? God is leading them by that pillar of fire, right? By night in the cloud by day. But what happens? There's an issue. What's the matter? There's no water. They're out in the middle of the wilderness. And what happens in the story? Well, what we start to see is we start to see the heart of somebody who needs the Lord, which for the record is every one of us, myself included. So what, what do we learn about our hearts? We'll look at verse 2. It says, therefore, they have no water. Therefore, what do the people do? They begin to quarrel and argue with Moses, and they demand, and they say what? Give us water to drink, Right? So what do we see? Well, in the hard, hard hearts, the first thing we see is for many of us, uh, our default is anger and quarreling. You know, this is an issue that faces God's people repeatedly throughout the Torah, that God's people are quarreling with one another, they're quarreling, quarreling against Moses and God's leadership, and then they're angry with each other. And, you know, that, that sin of quarreling and anger actually runs through the whole, the whole Bible, right? Um, I didn't have time to list every time the New Testament has to warn Christians not to quarrel with one another. Uh, you know, Titus 3 gives a really clear uh, uh, command against this. It says, Christians, right, speak evil of no one, no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Uh, Second Timothy uh, says it this way, avoid quarreling, which only ruins the hearers and does no good, right? Now, there's a sociologist at the University of Virginia named James Davison Hunter, and he's a believer, and he wrote a wonderful book called The Change of the World. And uh, as he was sort of studying American life, he said the, the defining feature, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, left, right, or confused, or in the middle, or wherever you are, right? Uh, he says the defining, the defining feeling of our culture right now is, is one of resentment and anger, right? Resentment and anger. Can you feel resentment when you watch the news or you talk to your neighbors or you think about your neighbors because you don't want to talk about to them, <laughs> right? Quarreling was an issue in the Old Testament. It's an issue in the New Testament, and it's right on through to today. Uh, we have a quarreling problem. And then notice, again, what else do we see about their hearts, right? So they're quarreling. And then what do they say to Moses? Do they say, Moses, God has miraculously given us manna just, you know, a chapter before in Exodus 16. God made, like, food literally fall from heaven. Do you think he could, like, you know, make it rain or lead us to a river? No, they don't, they don't talk like that. What do they say? They say, give us some water, right? <laughs> they're demanding, right? 
And, uh, you know, how, how many of us, you know, have that attitude towards the Lord where instead of asking, we have these expectations we demand of him. But I guess what I want you to start to see is, you know, what we're starting to see as we read the Bible is the Bible often reads us, <laughs> right? It's like holding up a mirror to ourselves. And I think when I, when I picture these people uh, demanding water from Moses, angry, Moses says, they're about to stone me. All right, so this isn't just like they're issuing a complaint. They're very angry. They're on the brink of potentially stoning Moses, and they're demanding water. What, it, what, it, what, it real, what we realize, I guess, what I want to suggest to you is these people knew God was real. They can see the pillar of fire. They saw the ten plagues. They know God is real. There's no doubt in their mind that, that God is real. They've seen his signs, and yet they remain quarreling, demanding people. It's possible for us to know God is real, to know God is powerful, and yet to remain like that. If, if you've met Christians who are like this, you know, on behalf of Jesus, you know, I'm sorry. But the way you fix this isn't self-help books, positive thinking. It's something else entirely. But before we get to that, let's keep going, right? Let's keep doing the, the, you know, the autopsy. Well, what else do they do? But the people thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses, and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? <laughs> Don't you care about the children, Moses? I love that that's what they say. <laughs> but really what we, we see in that, right, is a deep distrust of the Lord. Why are you bringing us here? And yet they have seen God's reality over and over and over again. And, you know, when I read that, I just think about myself because there are so many times in my life where I know God was real. Anybody have those moments where you knew God was real, that he was looking out for you and your family? And then for some reason, later on, when life starts to get a little dry and you get a little thirsty, you start to distrust the Lord. And you say, why are you bringing me here? <laughs> you know, um, there's a distrust. Um, think about it this way. That's, that's the question of somebody who doesn't believe they live in a world where God is with his people. I mean, that's what Moses says, right? They say, you tested God by saying, are you among us or not? If, if you don't trust that God is with you through the dry, hard times, um, friends, um, can I suggest to you God is so much better than you think? So much better. Of course, they use sarcasm. Did you notice that? Um, I can't help but laugh a little bit, you know, when they're like, the children, the children are going to die. Like God is somehow unconcerned about their children and livestock. But what I want to point out to you is that, uh, you know, part of the ways that anger and distrust and demanding comes out is also in the form of sarcasm. You notice that? They're being sarcastic. Are you, are you, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? You know, why did you split the sea? Was it to kill us? <laughs> you know, I mean, goodness gracious. How could you ever get to that answer, right? Well, they're being sarcastic, you know, to Moses. And, uh, you know, um, the word sarcasm, I know there's, there's, you know, there's kind of like two sides to sarcasm. There's like the fun, sarcastic way, but then there's also like a really dark side to sarcasm, right? Um, you know, the Greek word sarcosmos uh, literally means, you might know what the literal word sarcasm means, like if you like break it down by the root, it means to tear flesh, to bite in rage and to sneer. Uh, even Webster's dictionary defines sarcasm as a sharp utterance 
designed to give pain, right? They're using hard logic. Why'd you bring us out? I mean, you know, how, how many of the things that I say when I'm just trusting the Lord come out in a sarcastic way? Any, does that resonate with, am I the only sarcastic one here? There's a little bit of sarcasm in that question. Anybody, anybody catch that? Some of you are astute. Right, and of course, you know, another aspect of sort of a distrusting heart is they're really quick to go to the worst-case scenario, aren't they? I mean, think about, like, what God has done in the Exodus. I know we haven't really gone over it, but you know the story, right? God delivers the people. He does ten incredible plagues, right? They are literally, like, loaded down with silver and gold. They've they've plundered the Egyptians. Uh, God has caused manna to fall on the ground, right? (laughs) And then what do they say? They immediately go, Oh my goodness, there's no water. The kids are going to die and the livestock, right? They're, they literally go to the worst case scenario because they're thirsty. And yet, I mean, how often do we do that? I mean, that's, that's the really ugly side of fear, right? Is that fear and distrust of the Lord, what it does is it, it operates with this weird dichotomy of logic and illogic, right? There's that weird like you know, when you get on the airplane and you do the stats thing, and you know, I'm terrified of flying, and I do this every time I get on the airplane. I'm like, okay, only like one in 10 million people die in an airplane. So what does that mean? I'm going to be fine. But that's not what my distrustful heart says. You know what my distrustful heart says? It echoes that great movie, Dumb and Dumber. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance, Right? How quickly do we go to the worst-case scenario? I mean, if you find yourself playing over and over and over again worst-case scenarios, um, look at that question, that anxiety, and reflect and say, do I really believe the Lord is with me or not? Do I believe the Lord is with me in this or not? If he is, I need to hold out hope, right? If he is, I need to hold out hope. Because why would he bring me out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? He wouldn't. He wouldn't. God can't plan the end and not plan the means, right? If your eternity is secure, God also has a plan for you today and through your life. And of course, you know, they do uh, the favorite tactic of, you know, myself and many others. You know, the last sort of window into the soul, right, is they do the blame game, right? Who do they blame? <laughs> who, who do they blame? Well, they, you know, they blame Moses, Right? They blame Moses. And of course, you know, how often do we just, when we are upset, try to find somebody to blame? You know, who, you have, you have any people on your list that you're ready to stone? But why, why are they like this? I know this is kind of a downer, uh, but, you know, why do we need to see ourselves in this story? Or why does, maybe say it a different way, why does Exodus depict the people with such honesty? <laughs> or, or maybe ask it this way, why are they like this? Why are they so distrusting? Why are we so demanding? Why are we sarcastic? Why do we blame others? You know, why, why did the, all of these issues that plague the Israelites, plague the Christians in the New Testament, and plague us today in 2021 in Southern Oregon? Well, Exodus 6-9 gives the answer. If you look in Exodus 6-9, Moses writes this word, these words, but they didn't listen to Moses you see why? They don't listen. In Exodus 6, 9, you can get on the screen. They don't listen. They don't get it because of their broken spirit. 
and harsh slavery. You know why they're like this? It's because they're this. Nothing they pour in can make it alive again. No amount of positive thinking, positive reinforcement can really make something dead come alive. They need something else entirely. And you know what they need? They don't just need to get out of Egypt. Getting out of Egypt didn't solve their heart problem, did it? Getting out of Egypt just revealed it. What's the answer? Well, maybe ask it this way. How does God choose to address this? What's our hope? Well, I think in verses 5 and following, the answer to our hard hearts is we start to see the heart of God. Look with me at verse 5. How is God going to respond? And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on me before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. So stop right there. So God's people are about to kill Moses, potentially. They're about to stone him. They're grumbling. They're angry. They're distrustful. They're sarcastic, and they're blaming one another, and they're quarreling, right? And we serve a holy God who hates sin and injustice. And God would be totally within his rights to to take these people out and punish them for their sins, just like he had punished the Egyptians for their hardness of heart. Isn't that interesting that a hardened heart is one of the things that Pharaoh has? And what does Moses do every time Pharaoh hardens his heart? Well, often he takes the rod, the staff, right, that Moses has, and he sort of uses it like a judge's gavel, you know, um, Someone was going through the historic church, and they found a gavel from the women's Bible study. They gave it to me a couple weeks ago. I should have brought it, and I could have gone, bang, 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 bang. you know how a gavel sounds? It's like, bum, 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 right? Well, what's a gavel supposed to symbolize? Well, it's the rod of judgment. Well, that's very similar to how Moses' staff works, right? So Moses extends his staff, right, over the Nile, and that's what makes the Nile turn, right? It is a sign of judgment. And so God's people are about to kill Moses, And they are totally deserving of the rod of judgment. They are deserving of God's wrath and punishment. And God says to Moses, okay, get the rod of judgment. Get the belt. Get the switch. And carry it and walk in front of the people with it. Make sure they can see you. And bring some elders so there's eyewitnesses. But then what happens? Look at verse 6. Behold. Gosh, I love that word. Behold. I, this is the Lord talking, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. See, what happens in Exodus 17 even though the people deserve the rod of judgment, even though they deserve punishment, God says, I'm going to go stand. My holy presence is going to go before the rock. And when you raise the rod of judgment, instead of striking the people, I want you to strike me with the rod of judgment. And when I stand before the rock and you hit me, water's going to come out of the rock and the people are going to drink, and they're going to live. Friends, this is the gospel in Exodus. What 
was God doing on the cross. God entered our world as our Redeemer, the ultimate redemption. He became a man. Even though he did no sin, God treated him as if he had done all of our sin. He took the punishment we deserved, and he was nailed to a cross because of our sin. And he was struck by the rod of judgment so that we would live. You know, is it, do you know in um, 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul puts it this way. This is one of my favorite verses. What a wonderful memory verse. In 2 Corinthians 5, in explaining the gospel, Paul writes this. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, friends, it's the divine exchange, the God who is punished for us instead of punishing us, right? This is why Moses calls this place by a new name because he wants them to remember that when God took the punishment for his people and the rock flowed out with water, they should always remember this story. And friends, I'm not just making this up that this story is meant to point to Jesus because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul specifically says this story is all about revealing the heart of a God who delivers us. <laughs> this story is all about revealing Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if we can get that on the screen, Paul writes these words. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, the manna, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. In John chapter 19, 34, when Jesus is on the cross, and when he's dead for us, and his body is dead, and a spear pierces its side. What does John say flows out? Well, John 19, 34 says this, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Because Jesus is the rock. That even though we have sinned, he takes the punishment for us and outflows water and life. Friends, do you know what this means? <laughs> you know what this means? Uh, do you know what it means to be redeemed? Let me say it a different way. You know what this is? What's this? It's this. It used to be alive, now it's dead. The world will tell you to put all kind of things in here. Go to the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. There'll be no end to the personal improvement industrial complex. You know, there's a, there's a festival in, in ancient Israel called uh, Sukkot, where the people were supposed to remember when they were living in the wilderness and God miraculously provided for them. It's actually all about this story, when they were living in the wilderness, having to be dependent on the Lord when they were remembering their sort of dry throats. But you know what Jesus says? Jesus actually goes to the festival in John 7. He goes to this festival. 
And in John chapter 7, Jesus says these words. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow what? Rivers of living water. Now, friends, do you see your heart? Do you see the heart of a God who has been preaching the gospel to us since Exodus? And do you hear Jesus' invitation that the only thing that can make something dead come alive is what Jesus provides, his living water? Now, friends, that's the invitation to know the God who delivers us. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you that you truly give us true food and true drink. Now, Lord, we come to you thirsty, in need of your spirit. Now, Father, we thank you that we can come before you without money and without price, and we can buy and drink and live. And Father, prepare our hearts to take communion now. And Lord, we thank you that you are our rock, and out of your side flowed water and life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.